Ward Podcast, episode 51. Go. The fucking <laughs> five-minute <laughs> runway. Yeah, it's good. It's so good. if you're joining us, all zero viewers, um, we had some technical difficulties getting this thing up and running because obviously I started the the broadcast too early. So hi, Dan. Hi, Dylan. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm great. It's the, it's I'm the- the Double D Podcast. It's the Double D Podcast. Woo! One night only. One night only. Phantom events. Coast to coast. Coast to coast. So what's up with you, Dylan? Uh, nothing much. Um, watching the summer wind down, trying to get... Waiting for this heat to fucking stop. Yeah. I hear that's driving me insane. I hear it's hot back, back east. Yeah. My... Uh, We've been letting our cat outside, and um, he hasn't been playing nice with the neighbor's cat, so I went to go outside and get him, and I didn't know where he was, so I just stood there, and just standing there out in the heat for a good five minutes in my work attire was enough to make me go, fuck this. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. Welcome to Richmond Weather Podcast. (laughs) (laughs) How's 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 the weather treating you in LA? Still balmy? Um, it's cooled down a bit since last week for sure. Uh, last week was rough. It's it's. I feel bad saying it's rough because I personally am really not comfortable in humidity, and it's not humid out here, so that's really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is, if it gets warm here, there's no air conditioning, and it just it's not comfortable. What do so. you mean? There's no like there's no AC in your apartment. No, there's no AC in like any apartments. Like, it's just not a thing out here because it's just because you don't need it. Pretty much, yeah. That's weird. Yeah. So, but there are like the occasional. There were like two weeks this summer that were just insanely hot. Yeah. I uh, I don't know if I've to- told the story on uh, the podcast, but I had a um, my freshman dorm because I was in the medical campus my first year here when I transferred, and um. First, okay. First off, let's just acknowledge that Dan looks like an anonymous interviewee on like a CNN like broadcast. <laughs> I was never this- here. You don't know that I'm here. <laughs> I was never here. I was. I agreed to be on to if my anonymity was protected. That's right. <laughs> this is Sean Connery. <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna say I sound like Sean Connery. Apparently. <laughs> All right, that's out of the way. Uh, but yeah, so. There's, um, the, the AC and the heat was like, uh, remote, uh, controlled from like some other part of campus. So there was like two weeks between the transition from, uh, hot weather into cold weather where the heat or the AC would just shut off and it was unbearably hot. Oh, and I didn't know that it was intentional until I put like two maintenance requests in. And they didn't respond to my first one. I filed the second one and I just get the single line email response just saying, yeah, they're supposed to work like that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it sucks for you. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty bad. Yeah, that's rough. Um, But yeah, well, I'm glad it's not crazy unbearable. We had like one rainy day here this past week 
where it just like cooled everything off and then it just immediately got back up to like 95 the next day yeah so well i'll be back next tuesday so i'll get to experience the joys of that and i'll be gone and you'll be gone i'll be in missouri it's all right though so one more week after that we'll be able to finally do a podcast where everyone's in the same room again for the first time in four months Macy's gonna be so excited. Oh, it's gonna be great. Can't wait. Cool. So, speaking of Mason, people might be noticing we don't have Mason or nor, nor Alex with us this evening. It's because it's Mason's birthday. It's so, his birthday. Shout out to Mason's mom for giving birth to him. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, that's never easy. Um, <laughs> But especially not should, to Mason. Especially not to Mason. Uh, and shout out to Mason for, you know, uh, being awesome. So happy birthday, Mason. Hope you're having fun tonight. I hope so. Well, that's all right, because we're going to have a guest on. Yeah, we are. Soon. Who's our guest? A guest? <gasps> a guest? Tell us about uh, the guest, Dylan. Uh, we're going to have uh, Rich Atlas on. He is the uh, CEO of Clever Endeavor. Um, and they just made... Ultimate Chicken Horse, which I sent you the links to that stuff today, Dan. You did. And you seemed rather intrigued by that. I am. It sounds and looks really awesome. So first off, I have to say I love, I think the art direction looks awesome. I haven't played the game yet because it's it's collaborative, right? It's co-op. Yeah, and I think so, there's an online. You can oh, play is there? Multi- oh, okay. Yeah. Um, because it looked, it looked to me like it was... Uh, I didn't I didn't try it online. I'll have to give that a try. Um, yeah, I, th- I thought it was only couch co-op. Yeah, so, okay. Or couch competitive. But you can do couch co-op with it, yes? Yes. Yes. So we're definitely going to have to try that when we all get home. Right. Um But uh, the art direction looked great, and, and it looked like a really cool um, kind of variation of, like, Mario Maker meets Worms kind of thing. I... Uh, I'll be curious to hear the the studio's take on it, but it looks really sweet. It looks yeah. um like you you design levels essentially to screw with your friends and mm-hmm. and hopefully beat them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's basically the gist. And we can wait till Rich uh comes on so he can awesome. give us the spiel. But what awesome. I want to hear about because he'll be on in about 15 minutes or so. Um what I want to hear about from you, Dan. Oh, I think I know is, where this is going. <laughs> so I want to hear about Suicide Squad. There it is. Boom. <laughs> okay, so um, Suicide Squad. You so may, you got Thursday tickets. I got Thursday night tickets. I bought them last Monday. Um, IMAX in in Los Ooh. Angeles, right? So Ooh. in well, I was in Century City. So you're I'm just sure sitting I next was, to Jared Leto. I, I, he was right next to me, Margot Robbie on one side, Jared Leto on the other. Um, no, but actually, I, I have to think that because Century City, there, there are people, a lot of people in the industry that live around there, uh, and work, certainly people in the industry that work around there. I, I have to think that because when I bought tickets on Monday, there it was al- the theater was almost sold out. I have to think there were people there that worked on the film, um, or at least work in the industry. So. Uh, that was interesting to me. Just going to a movie on opening night in Los Angeles. Um, I'm not. I'm, I'm not familiar with Century City. Is that like the Vatican City equivalent <laughs> of LA? So LA has a lot of Vatican City equivalents, where there's like cities within the city of LA. Um, I guess it'd be Hollywood, wouldn't it? Hollywood actually. Like- so Hollywood is not its own city. It's technically in the city of Los Angeles. West Hollywood, however, is its own city. Um, but Santa Monica is its own city. Culver City is its own city, and all of these. And there's a bunch of others, and all these cities are actually within the boundary 
of the city of Los Angeles and LA County is huge. It's like 12,000 square miles. It's just massive. Um, and so within LA County, you have the city of Los Angeles, you have, um, you know, all this stuff without traffic. Like for, I, I live near Venice beach, um, in, in an area called Mar Vista and they're both part of the city of Los Angeles. Um, but very close, it's about a mile and a half to the beach. Um, takes me if without uh, without traffic on the freeway it would take me probably 30 minutes just to get to downtown la and then there's all the like you know parts of of east of downtown la so it's it's huge and then there's north and south and areas and it's it's just massive city um geographically Uh um but so anyway century city is kind of right in the middle um it's it's there are it's actually where I worked last time I was here. Um, there are a lot of like agency, like talent agencies there, um, and and marketing types. For, so it's a lot of the business side of the industry uh, is is kind of focused all around Century City. But there's okay. this really huge high end mall there. I actually worked at a restaurant in Century City when I lived out here nine years ago. Um, and so this movie theater at the mall is is really high end, really nice AMC theater. Uh, you know, several IMAX screens. And so um, it was one of those things where I'm like, hey, you know what? I'm excited about this movie. Uh, I said to to my buddy Hunter, hey, let's, you want to go see this? <laughs> I, friend of third, the show, third, Hunter. Friend of the show, Hunter. I'm just going to keep calling him out because I know he listens sometimes. <laughs> so, um, and, and we were both really psyched. We were really excited for it. And so on Monday night, we bought tickets. And then all the reviews started dropping like that later that night, the next morning. Uh. And then and then by Wednesday, we were just like, well, I guess we have to go to this tomorrow. Because um, it was like the tickets were like 20 bucks a pop. They were not cheap. Because um, mm. A, LA is expensive for movies anyway. But B, um, it was IMAX. So it was just like, right. y- you know. Um, so So we get there and... And it, and I would say about twenty minutes into it, we <laughs> the, the like the revelation set in like oh well, no it was no, oh no. no twenty I will say twenty minutes into it I was like maybe it's not as bad as everyone says it is, and then the rest of the movie was just terrible. It was just yeah. so bad. I heard like um, one of the best scenes was that scene with uh, Will Smith and uh, uh, Vi- Viola Davis. So. Yeah, and I and I will say I liked Will Smith's performance a lot. I like Will Smith as an actor. I think he does a good job with almost everything he does. Um, uh, he was certainly one of the more redeeming qualities. Um, I will say that the performances overall, I thought they did a great job with what they were given. I think the writing of the movie was pretty terrible. Um, I think that the... It it really was not even didn't even feel like a comic book movie to me. It felt more like a um, zombie movie, like a zombie shooter for the last hour and twenty minutes. Um, and it just was a just a mess of a film. I mean, it was very obvious. And I and granted, I've been following this movie for years as it's been in production, uh, as I think we all have. But um, you know, the thing for me was that it just was so blatantly obvious that they kind of piece this together and, and, you know, a lot of these things that we've been reading about the reactionary um, response from Warner brothers and, and DC after Batman versus Superman um, that they did reshoots. And, and it, it's pretty obvious mm-hmm. that there were 
there was a vision for this movie that was the director's vision, and there was a vision for this movie that were the producer's visions. And the producer's visions certainly, I don't know if they won out entirely, but it's more heavily weighted towards that. And I think right. the biggest the biggest testament of that, and I'm sure you guys have probably read this in some things, but it was obvious having seen it, um, was the fact that Jared Leto was in the movie for like five minutes. Right. Um, well, Dan, I want I want to interrupt you so we can introduce our our guest, Mister Rich Atlas. Hey guys, Hello. can you hear me properly? We can hear you, man. All right, sounds good. I can hear you too. Awesome. Sorry well, to interrupt. I just was coming in at the film, uh, the film discussion. Yeah, no that's worries. all right. Welcome to the uh, show. We're just we're talking Suicide Squad. <laughs> I'm sh- I I'm sh- had some friends who saw it tonight, and I was not able to see it. Not because of this, though. So don't worry. Well, don't don't <laughs> let me. And don't let don't let me spoil anything for you. Um, if it you know if, if I'm not I'm not gonna give away Uh-oh. any critical spoilers. We'll say that. All right, no worries. Um, so, uh, Rich, where are you coming? You're coming to us from Montreal. Yes, Montreal, Canada. Awesome. awesome. Where are you guys? Uh, so I'm in Los Angeles currently, uh, and Dylan is in Richmond currently. Although I I call Richmond home as well. I'm just out here temporarily for a, a freelance uh, gig this summer. So very cool. Um. So yeah, so uh, Dylan, you're kind of leading this this shindig. You want me to keep talking about Suicide Squad, or we want to jump into some some video game stuff? You guys can finish up if you'd like about the about the movie, and we can move on to the games after if you're if you're down. Yeah, I'll touch I'll touch on it just a little bit, and then we can maybe hit it some more uh, when we record next time, Dylan. Um, whoa, Dylan, I just got two of you. Did you join the? Are you are you? Yeah, my, my Wi-Fi fell. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, I, I think big takeaways for me that it was just a really sad example of where Hollywood is today where they try to make the movie that they think is going to sell pure, purely and they don't take into consideration whether it's actually a good movie. Um and and in this particular case, uh, you know, it, it, what's what made me sad about it is so there were two movies that I saw this summer that I went into with really low expectations. And one of them was a pleasant surprise, and that was Ghostbusters, um, because, uh, you know, that first trailer for Ghostbusters, we talked about this on the podcast a few weeks ago. I was not expecting much, ended up really enjoying the film, seen it twice now. Uh, it's just a fun summer movie. And even when it wasn't when it wasn't good in terms of writing, the performance was always, or the you know, the performance and the writing were always really good. So even when that wasn't being showcased um, and it was just more for visual effects, it was a fun movie. This wasn't even good for visual effects and, and fun. The pacing was off. It was dark, but not in a, not in an intense and compelling way. It was just kind of bad visual effects. The, the actress playing the lead um, bad, bad guy was uh just not good um it was so it was rough i will say the closing credits uh the animation job for the closing credits was fantastic uh, <laughs> just so, look at just digging for a compliment just, there aren't i'm trying you? to find something uh uh so you know there was that but um yeah so so unfortunately suicide squad not uh did not do it for me. I was really disappointed because um, those are some of my favorite characters. I love, I love the Joker. I love 
Uh, Harley is one of my absolute favorite characters in all of comics, so um, really disappointing. I will say Margot Robbie's performance was better than I expected. I, I do have to give it that. Um, but that being said, I wanted more of her, um, and I wanted more of the Joker, uh, which was surprising because I, I was not expecting to like Jared Leto's performance. I still think it was not remotely close to Heath Ledger's performance, nor remotely close to Jack Nicholson's performance. Um, but it was still, given how boring the rest of the movie was, um, the the five minutes he was on the screen at various points in the film were the most exciting parts of the movie. So, um, yeah. you know, I'll be interesting to I'll be interested to see how they use him going forward. But I've uh, I feel like we've seen a lot of um, trailers, specifically the these past two DC comics movies, and then also the Warcraft movie where our immediate friend group was, we watched them and we were like, you know what? That doesn't seem that, doesn't seem that bad. And then these critical re- responses are very are very harsh. And then they drop that Justice League trailer, and then all of a sudden the start again, you're just like, you know what? That, that, that seems okay. And then I feel like that's just kind of reigniting the cycle. It's kind of like the yeah. the Sonic cycle almost. Like, this, 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 this Sonic seems okay. I'll play the Sonic because <laughs> this Sonic's... This Sonic's not okay. Yeah, this Sonic's uh, not okay. This three D, this three D Sonic is not okay. Um, um, uh, Rich, if uh, if we haven't addressed it to you yet, yes, Dan is in witness protection. Um, <laughs> he has to keep his his identity concealed. Uh, That's what it's it looks just, like. No, yeah, yeah. I just it was it's I I have a really small apartment that I'm subletting for the summer, and the only way I can sit and and have this whole setup is with the big window behind me, and so unfortunately. I swear I'm a person. I'm there. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just very dark. You sound more or less like a person, so I think you should be. Excellent. Oh. Excellent. I mean, you could say that about anyone in L.A., but, I mean, I get your point. <laughs> but also probably every apartment in L.A. is that size that is affordable. So, there you go. Now you're super light. See? There we go. It's That's just better. crazy how, yeah, how reactive those those cameras are to, uh, to lighting, just adjusting like that. Yep. Are you guys getting too much background noise on my side? My roomies are watching a movie, but uh, we are getting some background noise. I wasn't sure if that was from you, Rich, or Dan, but yeah. Here, I'll just put. Yeah, there's definitely a movie happening behind me. All right, that's fine. kind of and the walls are kind of thin. Sorry about it that. happens. Movies, movies happen. Movies happen. <laughs> movies happen. <laughs> we found out a suicide spot. Um, but Rich Atlas, thank you again for coming on. Thanks and, for having uh, me. Yeah, it was no problem. Um. I've been uh, trying to reach out to more uh, devs out in the in the indie scene and kind of wanted to hear their thoughts and opinions on games they're working on and what their studios are doing. Um, Ultimate Chicken Horse, I think I first saw, I think a couple months ago. I think Giant Bomb did like a a quick look on like. Yeah. Was it early access? Was it in your game in early access? No, I think I'm not sure if it was out or if. It was either wasn't out yet or it was out but still kind of broken because we kind of shipped it while it was broken, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> unfortunately. But uh, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not sure. It might have been before it actually came out. I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah, and I just saw that and I was like, well, yeah. I thought that was like a really creative idea. I was like, wow, that's that's impressive. Just kind of like the 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 competitive platforming thing, but also like level creation because um, like you see things like new new super mario brothers u where like you have the competitive aspect but not so much like the creative aspect and i thought this was really fascinating 
Um, well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it actually it actually started as a game jam game. Uh, as they always do. It's uh, it started actually because we well I was trying to put a team together uh-huh. and actually start a company and we you know I'd met a couple of guys who I was thinking I'm good to work with but then at the same time how do you know if you're gonna basically start a marriage with people that you don't really know so um, so I said okay well, what's like the highest stress situation we can put ourselves in to see if we work well together so we decided to do a game jam and it was I think it was meant to be for some actual game jam competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had read the date wrong, and it was like 2014, not 2015. Um, so we started doing the game jam. We're like, oh, we're gonna apply, and then I looked at the website. And we're like, oh, wait. But whatever. We still did a one weekend long game jam, and uh, and yeah, that that's where the idea was born. It started with the idea of instead of being the instead of being sort of the hero that runs through the level, you're the opposite. You're the person who's creating the level, and then the hero has to run through it. So the initial initial idea was almost more like a dungeon crawly kind of game, where you would build the dungeon, and you'd have to make it, I don't know, we didn't get that far in the design, but somehow there was a reason why you'd have to make it possible, but really difficult for the hero. Uh, but you wouldn't actually play as the hero. And then we realized that it was a game jam, and we had like 48 hours. So we're like, okay, <laughs> let's go 2D, and let's do platformy stuff, because we've all played a lot of platformers. So let's do that. And that's where that came from. We showed it off at a local meetup that was about 30 people or so, and people really loved it. They're like, this is much more than a game jam game. You know, work on it. So we worked a little bit longer, and then we did Montreal Demo Night. Do you guys have IGDA in Richmond? Um, I don't I don't believe so. I mean, we're, I'm familiar with it, but I don't, I, don't, I don't think we have a local chapter or anything. Yeah, so International Game Developer Association, we have one in Montreal, and we have a Demo Night every year, and that is about five, 600 people, so it's pretty big. And so we showed it off there as well, and again got overwhelmingly positive feedback. And people were saying that this is really more than a game jam game. So with 600 people saying it, we're a little more confident when than you know the 30 friends of ours that were saying it. Right, right. So then it went, we ended up doing a Kickstarter, and that was again that succeeded, and that was again more sort of proof that the idea makes sense or is something worth working on. And yeah, that's where it that's where it came from. Yeah, you, you touched on a lot of really good things, like the first one being kind of like game jams being really good of giving you all the constraints necessary of like pushing a product out. Because, I mean, with no timeline crunch or any like capability crunch, you you know, you just start to just fantasize about anything you want to make. Oh, I want to make it 3D. I want to make it, you know, I want to make it this big grand thing. And then but you have 48 hours or you have a week or however long the game jam is. It's like, all right, we need to start. We just need to start cutting. Um, yeah, exactly. And then also like that constant iteration of like, all right, we need to put this out in front of people. We have to refine it and we have to find out what works, what doesn't work. Um, and, and having like a, com- a local community, like, I don't know. I'm vaguely familiar with like how big the, the game dev scene in Montreal is. I mean, it's, it, it's kind of like it's Montreal, Quebec and and Vancouver, right? Kind of like the three mainstays in Canada. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, and, and it's kind of harder in, in in Richmond or Virginia at, at all, because I mean the closest things we have in terms of like game development scenes are like North Carolina, where Epic's at, or Bethesda, where Bethesda's at. Um, yeah. But beyond that, there's not really a huge thing. But we fortunately found a lot of indie developers here that wanted to put something together, and it allows us to kind of constantly like. Uh, refine our craft. Nice, yeah. I mean, the Montreal scene is 
is the best. Uh, I mean, I haven't, I haven't lived in any other places, so I can't say, but from meeting people from the other places, it's, it's just crazy. I mean, th there's a couple things that make it awesome. The first thing is just, there's a ton of indie developers. There's about 90 companies or so that are at the point where they're, you know, incorporated and companies that are selling products and shipping games. So it's, that's the, you know, beyond the, those 90, I'm sure there's other teams and people who are making games and we're on their way to becoming that. Uh, so just like the, you know, the established indies or established from a company perspective, at least indies, there's about 90 of them. That's the first thing. Uh, we've got a really tight community here where uh, we have a co-op called the Guild and the Guild is all indie studios. And the idea is the Guild works to act as a government or act to sort of lobby in the, against lobby, with the government, lobby to the government. Anyway, okay. Um, talk to the government about making sure that our uh, our rights are being looked after because there's a lot of weight from the big companies that can talk to the government about tax credits and about all sorts of things, um, immigration laws for you know for foreign workers, things like that. The indie scene doesn't really have a voice, so this guild, this co-op, the guild kind of allows for that, and it also allows us to get deals on things like insurance or legal or tax credits, things like that, because we're like, hey, we're 90 studios that are going to give you business as opposed to one big studio. So that's the first reason. And the second reason is that we just get a ton of, you know, people go work for Ubisoft or Warner Brothers or now Bethesda or Gearbox or any of these people, Eidos, Square Enix, these are all Montreal. Um, so people go there, they get burnt out, and then they either want to start their own thing or they want to join an indie studio. So, you know, you'll get somebody with six years work experience, but that might have been like lead mission designer on Assassin's Creed. Right. And they're now an indie dev just sort of screwing around and making funny little projects. So it's a really, uh, it's a really great advantage, I guess, that we have. We just have like the, the, uh, like the leftovers from the, from the AAA scene. Do you find it difficult to like when if it ever comes to attracting talent or dealing with talent from one of the bigger studios like does it ever become difficult in terms of like compensation or like just kind of re you know explaining the expectations of like what the big players have versus what an indie studio has or do people usually come in like knowing what the expectations are because it's a smaller firm and things like that yeah i think people usually know what they're getting into and yeah you know somebody who's it depends on the level the junior who's worked for a year or two at one of the big companies isn't expecting much but they were also not getting paid much at the big studios the people who are you know five to ten years or so now we're talking a little more and for sure the seniors you really have to like they need to be paid well um but i think generally people understand when they come into the indie scene that there's going to be a pay cut on the other hand our studio you know, we're small, we're, we're three co-founders and we just hired a full-time employee, a full-time programmer who was working, not quite AAA, but he was working in, uh, people from the AAA scene sort of went off and started their own thing and he was working for them. And he, he didn't end up getting a pay cut, but you know, we have to pay him pretty well, but the way our studio, the way that co-founders have, and I have sort of talked about it, we don't, we don't want to be running a studio that's going to pay really terribly because we need to compensate our people well for their skills and we need to compensate ourselves well. And at the end of the day, if we can't make games that are going to pay the bills and like have us actually survive, 
then we're in the, either the wrong industry or we're doing something wrong. So our policy is a little more like, let's pay the right salaries or as close as possible to the right salaries and make it work as opposed to undercut and hope that it works out. Right. Yeah. I think focusing on like a, a livable wage first and foremost, like kind of puts exactly. you in the great launch pad for growth afterwards. Cause like, all right, we're setting the expectations now. Now we know what milestones we need to hit. It's not like, we're setting the bar, we're trying to squeeze the bottom line as much as possible and then try to make as much money on it because then people are just going to come back around and like, all right, now we're successful. Now I want more money or I'm out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So. And the other thing is that you need to, I mean, you could always, you could always live like we, we worked about a year without paying ourselves salary and we had some money saved up or, you know, we had the Kickstarter gave us a little bit that lasted a few months, you know, maybe four or five months if you stretch it. And, so we were just surviving and, you know, fortunate enough that I didn't have school debt or whatever. So like fortunate enough that we can survive, but you could just always keep pushing that and you could be like, oh, well, you know, we'll just do another project. We'll just do another project. Like eventually it's going to, it's going to be the one that's going to take off. But if you spend 15, 20 years of your life doing that, you're not going to have a great life. So, yeah, you know, we should compensate ourselves properly. And if it doesn't work, it's either the wrong line of business or, um, you know, or our, our way of looking at it is wrong or we're doing something wrong. Especially in the Richmond scene, I do see there's kind of the spectrum of like people that want to are treating it as a business and kind of want to, you know, structure it properly. And then those who are kind of like the bohemian starving artist types that kind of, you know, they want to just make their craft. They want to stay up till three in the morning and work on it when they want to and not work it, work on it when they don't and, and, and practice it that way. And, and and you get good work from both sides, but with the bohemian kind of people, they're like, well, why aren't I have seeing long-term success? And it's kind of like, well, you're not setting yourself up to what's, what's your, what's your business plan? What's your burn rate? What's your, you know, what, what are these things? What are your, your, your milestones for that? It's, 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 it's interesting. Yeah. And I think the people who are like that, who are like, I want long-term success, but I don't have to deal with all that crap. Uh, there's place for them on a team with someone who's the other side, right? Who's like, okay, you can do your work either when you want or, well, I mean, often if it's if people want to work 3am, I mean, hire those people on contracts, but, um, <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, you have, if you have the pair of the people, the person who's focused on the business and says, Hey, this is a business that has to be self-sustaining from a financial perspective. And you have the people who are pushing the creative. Ideally you can do both. Like I like to think that I'm a business minded person who wants to push the creative. Uh, I definitely know though that it has to be run like a business. And I think you need one of those on your team because if not, you can make great products, but either no one's going to see them or you're not going to have taken the time to, to be able to create a self-sufficient company. Right. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting because definitely everyone here, um, you know, the core four of us that are on the podcast, we kind of have like a lot, like a foot, we have, it's almost like we have four feet and there are like four different camps. It's like, you know, development and then art and then business minded and, you know, and then also have a knowledge of like creative writing or technical writing. Cause like Dan here, you know, he went, he, um, his undergrad was in, was it hospitality management, Dan? Yeah. Yeah. And then now he's in the, uh, the brand center, which is like this, a nationally known ad agency or ad, uh, master's college, um, here in Richmond, um, along with 
the two other guys that are in on the podcast, but also Dan does photography. You know, I do fine art, but I went to school as a programmer and also a business student. So it's like, it's the entrepreneurial spirit is very much, you have to have so many hats and just be constantly swapping them on and off. And then, but the difficult part comes in. Okay. I have all this, have all these skill sets. And I'm like this versatilist that has all this knowledge. And then now we need to go from, being a scrappy startup to kind of growing into a more mature organization, where do I fit in? Am I going to be the business leader? Am I, you know, I really early in the podcast I made the comparison is what do I want to be? Do I want to be Todd Howard, the creative leader? Do I want to be Phil Spencer, the business guy? And it's, it's, it's like a real big challenge to try to figure that out as studios grow, if they want to grow. Yeah. Well, even, even without growing, um, I mean, I, so I'm, I've t- my technically uh, my, my schooling was in mechanical engineering and uh, so no code, no real art. I mean, I, I do some fine art, but it's certainly not up to, up to scratch for comparing myself to the artist on our, like the lead artist on our team. Um, so coding is not great. Art's not great business. I don't really know where it comes from because I never studied anything involving business. Um, you know, marketing PR again, never studied any of that stuff. I studied mechanical engineering, which I don't think I'm using at all, but, um, but I am more of the business guy just because that's the, the mindset I've had. Basically my job is to get the word out and make, however that happens. So whether it's like schmoozing or it's doing the marketing stuff, or it's making sure that the company exists and is incorporated and, you know, doesn't fall apart. Um, but I do want to position myself as a creative, more of a creative lead. And that's something that has to be defined early on and has to be justified, right? So our team originally were three co-founders. We've got a lead artist, we've got a lead programmer, and then we've got me doing whatever other stuff. So the lead artist is sort of a creative director as well. And we both sort of want to fill that role. And now while the lead artist is doing a little more design, that's sort of something I want to do, but I've been busy with the business stuff, right? So we had a meeting at some point to just discuss it took maybe a year before we even had this meeting, but we wanted to discuss what our roles are, what our responsibilities are and what we expect each other person to do. So we actually wrote down beforehand, we wrote down everybody's responsibilities, including our own. And then we compared them and we realized, okay, well, you know, me and me and one guy think that the other guy should be doing this. And the other guy thinks that I should be doing this. So we need to actually talk about that and figure out who's responsible for what that was a big sort of breakthrough in the, in our chemistry and the way we work together. Because like you're saying, you know, figuring out if you're the business guy or the programmer, well, it depends what responsibilities you take and you can choose those responsibilities. But if you're not open about it, it means that you might end up in a situation where everyone assumes everyone else is doing stuff and nothing ever gets done. Yeah. That's a really good point because I know me and Mason, my co-founder, you know, we've had discussions like that before, like, you know, who's the creative here? Who's, you know, who's taking the lead on what? Um especially since we have so many different skill sets, it's, it, it sometimes becomes hard to grapple. And, and sometimes you just switch on the fly, depending on what the project is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's fine to a certain extent, but there might be issues where or there might be points where that becomes an issue. Now, my company hasn't had it yet. I guess yours hasn't either, but it's something that we have to be aware of when right. we're dealing with this kind of stuff. Yeah. I do think it's an important conversation to have. Yeah. Cool. Dan, you have any questions? Yeah, so um, so a lot of nice snippets there about kind of organizational behavior and and 
the mindset of of startup and all that kind of stuff. But when you when it gets down to the nitty gritty, um, what uh, what, who you cutting? Who's stabbing? That's right. Um, for you for you guys um, approaching a project on the scale of an indie dev, um, how are you exactly going about your development process? Um, for iterating through that product are you are you using more of an agile methodology where you're kind of all collaborating using those strengths or is it more of a kind of siloed uh approach where you know you you obviously that you you touched on the co-founders um but in terms of your entire team when you're i don't know how many other people you have um are are you at this point for your for your next project where you're planning on um uh really kind of fitting into those silos or have you talked about how that kind of agile co-production iteration thing is, is that more your approach? Well, so we're using, an we're using an agile management ish method. Uh, I wouldn't say it's quite agile because I don't really know any indie devs that actually do the agile thing. Sure. Um, but it's, it's more or less that we work in sprints. Uh, we used to do two week sprints, but they're now one week sprints. Um, and, we tend to make decisions about what needs to happen from pulling it from a backlog. So we do have a backlog of stuff we want. Uh, more recently, we've started to say, okay, well, for release 1.2, we want this. For release 1.3, we want this. And then we basically go through that list and fill our sprints with whatever is needed. In terms of who is doing what, so far that's been pretty clear right away. Uh, you know, there's a backend integration of something that's obviously a programmer. There's little, our artist also does, um, implementation of stuff and does some code. Sure. So there's some stuff that's simpler that he'll do. And the thing is the design stuff right now, because the game is fairly designed and sort of has kept us a pretty, um, pretty consistent design throughout, we, we tend to make the design decisions together a little more. So if there's any yeah. big design decisions, like we reworked the scoring system, well, we had a team meeting about that. We discussed it. We, we just, we came to a conclusion of what we thought would make sense. We sent the lead artist uh, to, to prototype it, basically. So call him artist programmer at this point. So we had him prototype it, and then we tested it out. And while he's prototyping it, he's making little changes. So he's doing some of that design himself. But for the most part, the big decisions end up coming back to the team. Cool. Now, is that always going to be the case? Uh, not necessarily. We hired another full-time guy, so we're four now. Two programmers, an artist who's also sort of a programmer, and then me. And... I think for the next project, the, the big design decisions are also going to stay pretty, you know, up to everyone. We're also, uh, this is not the most technical sort of uh, way of being productive, but we're all quite laid back. So if someone is, is feel strongly enough about something, it's easy for us to say, okay, you know what, like you care about this thing enough, take, take ownership of it, go. Cool. And that's something that I think is, is good. Might get us in trouble later, but so far has been fairly good. Yeah. How's, uh, how's the reception of the game been? People seem to like it. Yeah. Yeah. It's been really good. good. Uh, we had, we had a ton of YouTube stuff, a uh, bunch of YouTube videos from a lot of the biggest YouTubers, which is Can't beat always that. awesome. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And so it was, yeah, as far as sales are going, certainly good. Our reviews are good too. We, we launched the game with the online in beta and we, you know, it was our first time launching a game. We for sure were not ready to launch, but we kind of reached this point where we need money and we're kind of just 
running out of the, you know, we had an external investment. We were running out of that money. We, we had committed already that it was coming out at that time. So we launched with the online and beta. And then in the first week we managed to get the online functional. And then now it's, it's technically still in beta because we're still adding little features and stuff and testing them, but it's very functional and it's very rare that people will disconnect randomly or have any interruptions with the online stuff. Yeah. And that's been really good. And our sales are still, I mean, we're still selling about 400 a day. So nice. It's, that's great. it's going well. The, the community's alive. There's always about, I don't know, 30 to 50 games happening at once, which can be up to four players. So pretty, pretty alive. I'd say that's great. And it's, it's built in uh what what engine are you guys using? We're in Unity. Okay. That's why I thought yeah, just so we're make sure. in Unity and we're using um peer to peer through the Unity relay servers okay. for our for our online stuff. So we don't have dedicated servers or anything, but the relay servers, which is a new thing that Unity is is working on. It's also kind of interesting because they're just starting with it as well. So they're asking us questions and, <laughs> you know, we had some number of concurrent, like maximum concurrent users. And then we asked them, Hey, like our users are way more than this, even though I'm pretty sure we don't have that many players. Like what's going on? They're like, Oh, don't worry. We'll just up the concurrent users by like 10,000. Like, Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and they even, they even were at the point where they asked us, they were like, so here's a here's like a fake invoice. If we were to have charged you, this is how much we would charge you. Do you think that's fair? So, you know, um, so they're working with us to to improve their stuff as well. And I'm and you know they're working on bug fixes as much as we are. So nice. it's kind of a mutual, but mutually beneficial. Well, it's that's interesting. Really cool. It's interesting to hear kind of that beta development process and and how you came to market with certain things because you know you there's there's revenue considerations especially when you're talking earlier about um looking at it as a business and saying hey at a certain point we need to be able to pay ourselves we need to be able to pay the other talent um you know revenue is a huge part of that and it, it just it reminds me of a lot of what's going on now where uh no man's sky got released and a lot of people have been kind of giving them flack for this huge day one patch and yeah. uh you know it's one of those things where we're not in the era anymore of a cart that that gets shipped has the you know final game on it that that is the end all be all game um and i think that as developers that's that's a good thing because it allows us to say hey let's let's get what we can get out that we feel comfortable with knowing that we can then continue to make this game better and better and better and better um, and I, and I think that, you know, that's the era that we're in where, where day one patches are okay, because at a certain point they had to say, well, here's the version that we're going to put on discs that are going to be in retail. And here's the version that we need to, we need to be able to take the time to get that out and get it ready. Well, we can continue working on making that better in between that point A and, and release date. And so release dates here. Well, cool. Here's, here's all the cool stuff that we fixed. Um, so it was just interesting to see that, that they were getting some flack for that because I think it's a, a benefit to, consumers and and just to be on on the development side of things as well to be able to keep working and making a better product that ultimately people should hopefully enjoy and um come back to and tell their friends about and all that kind of stuff um so i don't know it's just interesting to hear that your your kind of story about that and related to that for sure we kind of sorry, lost you there I, at the end yeah, there, Dan. I just lost you as well. Oh, I, sorry. Did you? I just um, was saying it was cool to hear your story about that um, 
kind of last minute uh or not last minute but the the changes as it relates to improving the product over time even if if you've released certain parts of it i think it's uh great that we have that mm-hmm. i would argue well i would argue a couple things for our own purposes i would argue that had we come out with the online actually working it would have been significantly better i mean obviously it would have been significantly better but i think like over the course of let's say two years if you look at our total sales it will have made a significant difference i think sure the reason well one of the reasons i say that is because i think a lot of the press outlets so we got a ton of coverage after pax prime people uh we got coverage from ign kotaku giant bomb GameSpot, uh a whole bunch and then when we came out there was like nothing no reviews no anything mm-hmm. uh, you know we got an escapist review but there's no ign there's no GameSpot, there's none of that and I know the people, like the person who wrote about us, about us at GameSpot, we will tweet back and forth once in a while. It's not like it's a problem of not knowing them. I think the thing was that they're probably getting a lot of flack for reviewing games that are not necessarily finished yet, either early access or they're buggy. So they were probably like, oh, you know what? We'll wait till it's, you know, we'll wait till it's, uh, it's working and then we'll do it. And then, of course, they'll forget about it. So we didn't release in early access. We released just in fully launched but kind of broken and so thankfully we were super super open about that we're like look the beta um i think actually we launched with the yeah with the online mode and beta and you had to actually go to a separate beta branch on steam to access it so if you're going to play the beta if you're going to play the thing that's buggy you're specifically going out of your way to find it and if you're not expecting bugs at that point it's you know it's it's (laughs) It's in your face right yeah the onus is on you Exactly. So actually our reviews were really not bad. We were up at, we were still in our first month, we were up at about 90% positive on Steam. And now we're getting higher again. I think we're back at like 92 or so and we're, we're moving up. But at the beginning, we still, I don't think we were getting as much flack because people were just not, um, people were not pissed off because we were just so open. Mm. And, but again, the, the argument in general though, to, it is better for developers that we can ship something that doesn't necessarily have all the features or isn't perfect and we can update it. But I do think we kind of sit back on that a little too much. Uh, I think there should be, I think we should be shipping something that is a complete finished product. And then in the event where there are some bugs, obviously there will be in the event that there are any bugs that are serious enough to fix, then we can patch it. And it's great that we can do that for free essentially. Yeah. But I think sometimes we fall back on that. And one way is through early access and early access, I think is a whole other, I mean, we could get into that, but <laughs> even if, even if not on early access, if it's just a game that's being shipped, like if I'm going to buy a game when it comes out, for example, no man's sky, I didn't, I haven't got it yet, but if I did, I would expect it to be done. You know, there's been sure. hype about this thing for what, three, four years. Like, I expect it to be done and fully play throughable and <laughs> expect it to be done. Sean Mary, go ahead and shave your beard off. It's done. It's shipped. <laughs> it's on the store shelf. Give it to me. Exactly. Yeah. I think I think that's a problem kind of with develop software development culture in general uh, nowadays, just because, you know, we've we've moved from like there being a disc on a retail shelf, whether it's your your, you know, Microsoft Word or, you know, any sort of video game to being this constantly iterative update process where you know even for games where games are more works of art than software at this point or you know there's, there's a spectrum obviously but they it, it's hard to figure out what is the truest version 
Well, and it's even, you know, it, it gets hard because there are constant updates and patches to things. And then it's also hard because, you know, you have things like DLC and you have things like additional content and things like that. And say, how do you figure, what is the truest, most, the purest form of this single creative output and you can't figure that out because it's constantly sh- shifting moving but also the fact that we can kind of push an update relatively easily um to to a game you know makes us lazier developers well, it's not like also, it's being also, well, i was just gonna say it's not like it's being printed to a cart and then that's it and then you know if it if it's broken it's broken and we're screwed right um but you know there's also you only have that there's only you only have one chance at a first impression you need to right. make sure that at a certain point, you're not going to be turning off consumers entirely on your product. It, it you know, I, I think a, a good recent example. I know we've talked about it on the show the last few episodes is Pokemon Go. If if that game came out the way that it did with any other IP associated with it, if it if it weren't for the fact that it were Pokemon, that game would not have been successful because I mean I mean yes, it was basically Ingress, but it was it the the server issues and and the you know the ui issues that they're having um and specifically with the feature of finding and mapping and and whatnot um i you know i think that's a good example where if if that first impression is not there you you can turn a lot of people off pretty quickly and and it's going to fizzle out um i think they are lucky by the fact that they're bolstered by the ip of pokemon because people will just play it because of that but um yeah, the the tide shifts so quickly with Pokemon Go at this point because, like you're saying, with like the nearby the hunting feature and then them closing off access to third parties and things like that, and there's this huge tidal w- backlash of you know anger towards it. And then I feel like that's kind of subsiding now. Now that they're kind of re-implementing the nearby feature and some other stuff, and I really hope stuff like that doesn't start happening to like No Man's Sky. Because I mean, I feel like that's already been a roller coaster at this point. Yeah. Between like you know the highs and lows of that that game's development have been ridiculous. You know, to the point of you know death threats to Sean Murray and also death threats to people to people that reported about the delays. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. There's so much fervor about that game. I can't re- um, can't remember. Have you played it yet, Dylan? I haven't touched it on yeah. a PS4, so yeah. it's not out on PC until that, Friday. I forgot you don't have a PS4, yeah. 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 Same. <laughs> but what was the what was the issue with like what was the big patch about? I know I remember reading about the patch itself, but not what the issues were. For No Man's Sky? Yeah. So um so they pressed the disc obviously for PS4. I mean it went it went gold like I don't know, like a week or two ago. Um, and then they were working on this huge patch and the patch basically, um, redid the entire like universe algorithm. Like okay. it, it like <laughs> fixed Minor a bunch detail. of, yeah, it like <laughs> fixed a bunch of stuff like, like yeah. the, the auto generation and, and, and how the seeds worked. I heard it drastically changed the AI as well. Um, yeah. I heard that some people who played on pre-release, it was one of the things that, some people liked, some people did not, was that the AI was fairly docile. Um, and so it was very much this exploration thing. Um, and then with the with the day one patch, the AI in some cases has become much more aggressive and turning the game much more into a survival game, which I think was always the intention. Um, but it clearly straddles that vast exploration 
and strat and um, survival. And, and I think that it really tilted things more from one way than it had been previously. And so I think that some of the people who played pre-release were suddenly taken aback that it was a different game for all intents and purposes um, than what right. they, they kind of had been expecting. So the big so the big issue was the fact that, you know, there's that guy that bought No Man's Sky for like $1,300 on eBay. And then there were also um, retail outlets that were breaking street date. That both like journalists and also players were going out and buying the game be- ahead of time, so they didn't have that day one patch. So their expectations and their impressions of the game are already completely differently colored than what the actual real experience that players are supposed to get. And do you think that's a? I think that was like a PR issue where they just weren't clear about what the game experience was supposed to be like or what they're designing the game to be, or do you think it's? Just the fact that, because you know, it's not like they did that all the work for that one day patch in that one day. It's right, not, it, right. It's, it wasn't a response to something, right? No. So it must have been planned, and they must have just missed the mark by a day. But, um, like I know there have been some games that I've that I know that, you know, you look at the you look at the Kickstarter, you look at their, you know, their Steam page, and you're super excited for something. And the game comes out, and it's just not that at all. You know, you think it's an exploration game, and it's actually like a brawler. And you're like, wait, what? what? <laughs> and that, I think, is just a communication issue of being clear with what you want the player experience to be like. I, I, I think this, all the, like, misplaced expectations for No Man's Sky is completely just a, a communications problem. Yeah. Because, you know, there's... Because there's Sony has investment in it, and then also Hello Games, and apparently Hello Games was taking up like the brunt of like the PR as well as development. Like Sony was doing kind of like the surface level marketing, you know, putting out trailers on their stage at E3 and things like that. But it was mostly on the onus of Hello Games to communicate the what the game was supposed to be, and you know they were pretty quiet about a lot of things like apparently it wasn't even that well known that the pc release was pushed back to this friday like you had to dig through their website that's how you said it yeah and it it's so and and, you know and it's not something that to get super angry about them for because you know that team is like a dozen people 15 or 20 at the most and like you know they have so many other things to focus on you know with development that it's a hard thing. And also, like that initial trailer at E3, you know, talking about a quintillion planets, it's like you've already set expectations so high to make it, you know, this huge procedurally generated world well, that people and, already yeah. have this crazy expectation for. And I can only imagine what QA is like on a game like that. I mean, you have to be, the production schedule obviously is huge, but the, to do to do quality assurance for a, a gold on a game that's so vast in terms of possibilities and all those variables you're you're still going to find bugs years well maybe not years but certainly months into it that i think ultimately it's it's about how does the quality assurance dictate um in, in in a procedurally generated world like that how do you keep that qa up in a way that you're not suddenly changing the game over and over again and i think this is just that 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 time frame caught up with them and they had to put it out on day one is is ultimately where that came out and and, you know doing qa for something like this wouldn't be the same as doing qa for like a skyrim because there's not that much like they're not like making like 500 custom quests like they're doing a bunch of you know 
spawn points that you interact with, you know, interactive points on the world. So they basically had to, they, they would have to see how these systems interacted with one another, but it's not like there's uh, so many, a huge number of custom systems they have to interact with. They just have to make sure that there's a constant, you know, the seed is being constant across all of these systems. And I know one of the ways they did that is that they created some sort of script that was basically like a camera probe that just would go to all these different planets and just show how the planet was generated and to see if that's if the seed was working correctly and they would just like spawn these things across the entire universe and just 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 period periodically check in because yeah. obviously they can't check in at every single planet that would just completely be unfeasible right yeah um i mean i can imagine it's just a massive amount of of qa but there's also I don't know if you guys saw this, but there was um, the Talos Principle, which was by, who are they called? Um, by Crow Team. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you know about them, but or about the, the game. But the Talos Principle was a puzzle game, and they actually spent a huge amount of time making a robot, or making a basically a bot, that would go through the levels and would test every single iteration of every single possibility of choice in the levels that they used for QA. And they spent, I don't know, like, a few months at least developing this thing, but apparently it made their QA quite simple because they, it, it had every, every possible iteration of anything and it mm-hmm. would report anytime it ended up with, you know, something that was too difficult or something that was buggy, broken or going through a collider in a weird way or whatever. So, so that's another so thing. I mean, we all need to start submitting to our robot overlords because it's the, <laughs> the future. Well, it's, <laughs> It's like the same thing, you know, you do regression testing where you're testing like web apps or, you know, software applications, you know, you just basically create a bot that acts like a human hand or a mouse and just starts clicking all the buttons in the order that you want it to do and does that. And it's weird that a lot of the DevOps and QA stuff that's seen in other software development hasn't really been pushed over as much in video game development. Like, I mean... you hear all the horror stories about QA, but it's still for the longest time they've video game development QA was focused on the brute force method where it's like, all right, we just need a million monkeys typing on a million typewriters and we're just going to just going to brute force this thing to see where the bugs are. Well, and I think it's still kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in our case, we didn't even really do QA because we're like, well, we have to ship and it's 6am and we're shipping at 9am. So <laughs> we don't really have time. But uh, but the nice thing with us was we did give our Kickstarter backers early access to the game, and that ended up being a whole bunch of free testing. And then also the people who were playing the beta of the online beta were were essentially testing because they were giving bug reports and you know they were explaining what was going wrong. The annoying thing was that a lot of the stuff that they were reporting we already knew. It was just yes, we know we have to fix it, uh, so that's not ideal. But even at this point, you know we still get people testing stuff and like we put up a new feature and keeping that beta tag on our online is is nice even though it's doesn't really need to be there mm-hmm. um but it is nice because then we test the new feature and it's like oh well, this feature breaks this thing okay well it's a beta don't worry about it <laughs> um, <laughs> can yeah. you read the sign it says beta <laughs> yeah but so we went from like the the steam build where you have to actually go to another branch to get the beta to now it's just you know a tag in the game that says there's start game and there's play online and under the play on next to the play online, it says beta. It's a little, little beta thing. And eventually we're going to get rid of that 
but you know, I think our community knows at this point that we're going to bring out a new feature and it'll be tested enough that it won't be game breaking, but you might find some weird stuff that happens if you, you know, back out of your character while selecting a thing while jumping on your head. Right. Something strange will happen. You, you bringing that up, Richard, uh, remind me of how great like your menu system is. Cause Dan, like before you start a game in ultimate chicken horse, like there's basically just a giant switch to switch modes and it like has the most satisfying, just like slowly Love descend it. and then click, and then all the lights change. I, the music changes. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, I, I love it. For being UX and UI, that's music to my ears. I love that. I love hearing <laughs> it. Yeah, I mean, we definitely did want to make sure that everything was playable. And the initial thing was not even to have a start screen at all. It was just like you turn the game on, and then you're a character, and then you start walking around. But the issue there was, if you wanted to play as a different character, you'd have to deselect and reselect, and there were other issues, especially with online, joining lobbies, all that stuff. So we had one mini screen, but then once you press, press join game or play online, right away you're thrown into a big treehouse that has all the levels on it and all the options are, um, there's like a little computer console in the, in the treehouse and you can walk up to it and press A and then a little computer screen pops up and that changes the options. But the idea is that everything's in the world and when you go into a level, you actually jump on a button in front of the level and once everyone's on buttons in front of levels it'll do a vote based on where people want to go so interactive menus was definitely something that we fought a lot with and wanted to make sure that we kept plus it's fun when you know when you're waiting for people in a game in most games you just have a little text box that says you know waiting for players or searching for players at least in our case you can jump around on stuff and you can wall jump off things and you can sort of screw around a little bit that's smart as much as it doesn't seem like it helps, you know, those 15, 30 seconds are, are, it's pretty important that you can be distracted for that time. We also have the, actually, this is something that we did almost just cause we didn't really have a choice. We needed to put the credits in somewhere and we didn't want to put another screen. So we did this sliding credits thing where you jump on a button and then the credits start to come up from in one side of the treehouse. And you can actually jump on all the people's names and you can jump around on <laughs> the stuff. Great. And as it like carries you up into the sky. And yeah, and it's something that people play around with. And well, it's, it's that's great because I, you know, I was actually having this conversation. Um, I was at the VRLA Expo on Saturday um, in, in downtown LA. And uh, there was this one large installation for kind of a 3D projection screen slash um virtual headset rave and there was a dj there that was in a vive like mixing in the vive and uh and it was really it was really cool but one of the things that i noticed was they had the the like main screen that people could look at was to the left of where the line was while people were waiting and so while you're waiting you can only hear things you can't actually see anything and and ultimately the stage was a square and if they had just turned it you know, 45 degrees, you could have been waiting in line and watching kind of what was happening. And it just kind of made me think of, you know, Disney World and how they, they really look at how important that experience is of if you're going to ask a user to wait, give them the opportunity to enjoy that wait so that it gives them something to look forward to when they when they get in. And I think that's that's great to hear. That's a that's a really nice feature. Richard, I bet you're excited for uh now that that was it, that Namco patent has dropped where they had the ownership on mini games and loading screens. Just need, just need a game that's just loading screens and you're just playing mini games. You're just playing Dig Dug during a loading screen. 
I totally did not know they had a patent on that because we, we had considered doing that. We're like, oh, we don't have time. Forget it. But that was something we fully would have done without thinking about it. Yeah, um, well, it, it dropped, I want to say like a year ago. I, I don't know how okay. long ago it was, but yeah, it, it was recent. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, but that's it's gone now. It's like, it's like that patent and then like Square Enix has a patent on uh what's it called like the sphere grid in final fantasy is that what that thing's called do you guys know what i'm talking about i'm just um, talking out my ass i'm just gonna look as, I, as i said okay. last week <laughs> i haven't been playing final fantasy since it was 2d so <laughs> okay well never mind but like those are the only actual like gameplay patents i've ever heard of yeah but, it is the sphere grid thing yes um stupid knowledge 10 points to dylan uh put it on the board well, that's cool. Yeah, it's, uh, it's generally hard to patent game mechanics, though. Yes. Like, it's, yeah, it's something that we had thought about because we also were looking at, you know, Mario Maker came out or was announced after we started development. So we were like, oh, crap, Mario Maker, <laughs> that's kind of very much similar. So you're just and, like, no ultimate chicken horse release on Wii U. Got it. All right. Yeah, except then when we were at PAX, the Nintendo guys came up to us and wanted us to come out on Wii U. So, and now we're actually potentially talking to them for stuff in the future. So I was like, all right, well, and I actually asked the guy, I was like, I thought that because our game is so similar to Mario Maker, you guys wouldn't be interested. And he was like, Mario Maker is going to sell a bajillion copies, whether you exist or not. Uh, (laughs) If you guys can help us, if you guys can sell some copies and we can help you and you can make us money, like, great. It's, you know, we're such a small fish compared to that. But it Did just you have like matter. an existential breakdown when he said that? Like, oh, life is meaningless. <laughs> no, but not even. Because I'm like, you know, I know Mario Maker's gonna, gonna was going to sell a ton. But we had people writing in forums. We saw stuff on Reddit where people would be posting about Mario Maker. And they would say, oh, I wish I, there was an ultimate chicken horse mode in this mm-hmm. game. And we actually had some people That's awesome. play, play Mario Maker uh, before Ultimate Chicken Horse came out. They played Mario Maker in Ultimate Chicken Horse form. So they'd actually place a trap and then pass the controller to the next person who would place a trap and then they would start the level and try and run through and then the next time they would and it was really funny it was uh, these italian youtubers who did it the first time they had played the game at i don't know pax or something and you know they didn't have access to it so they're like all right let's just play mario maker but multiplayer so take the ultimate chicken horse rules and just do that that was a pretty big boost of confidence yeah i think you could do a lot of really good stuff with like asynchronous competitive playing with just the person with the tablet has all the knowledge and something like that. Mm. Yeah. And we'll see, I mean, we'll see if it's worth it. I know we use are not quite being sold so much anymore <laughs> and uh, we'll see what happens down the line, but we're definitely, I mean, we're definitely considering PS4 and Xbox and then Nintendo. It, it's not only because of sales. It's also just because the development on the Wii U is harder than PS4 and Xbox one from everything I've heard. Right. So, we're going to see, you know, we'll probably get it up and running on all three, and then we'll see what we think is going to take the most time. Plus, also, the PlayStation and Xbox are more similar in terms of certification. Right. So it's just, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to have to be a decision of a business decision of just do we have time? Do we have resources? Is it worth it? So I'm hearing Ultimate Chicken Horse NX launch title. <laughs> yeah, I wish. Um, they. <laughs> Do not talk about that. Like, oh, I, I asked, bet. We, we went for lunch with the Nintendo folks when they were here for a conference, and then again in San Francisco. And I'd bring it up, and then they, it's as if it's <laughs> not even a thing that exists. They're like, what are you talking about? It's what? Like what? Table gets real quiet, like, we don't talk. We don't <laughs> well, and then I said, like, I know, I know it exists. Like, I know you've given out dev kits, because I know people have dev kits. 
you know, generally a second party publishing stuff, but still, I know there are dev kits that exist. And he's like, no. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> okay. First rule about Fight Club. Fair you don't talk about Fight Club. It's like a, exactly. such a conspiracy theory denial thing. Like, so, uh, no, this, we all make games. <laughs> exactly. So we'll see. But if we can, part of that, part of the discussion of coming out on Wii U might be establishing a better relationship with them, right? And if we have a better relationship with with Nintendo Japan, because of that, it gives us more credibility and maybe a better relationship down the line, which might lead to, even if not on the NX, on the future consoles, you know, things like that. So we want to make sure that we're we're always working those relationships in as much as we can. Definitely, definitely. Cool. So um, one thing I want to... So, we don't want to keep bombarding you with questions, Richard, but I do have a question. <laughs> it ends up being discussion anyway, so I don't feel like I'm being interrogated. Right. Um, I'm curious what you're playing. Um, too much Rocket League. Yes! <laughs> you're in nice. your company. First of, all, first of all, too much Rocket League. I just bought Transistor, which is, it's, I know it's a little old, but I have not started it yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, what else was I playing recently? I played, I just finished Firewatch. Also, kind of uh, old, but that's a that's a sale. that's a podcast favorite of ours. I think <laughs> we oh, yeah. yeah we had a we had a full spoiler filled uh, podcast for Firewatch. If you want to check it out, fair enough. Yeah, I'll definitely have a listen. I found it, I found it good. Uh, I found it a bit disappointing. Like I felt like there was a huge buildup, and then I was waiting for like shit to go crazy, and they're like, "Oh, this is actually the resolution of all these things," and I'm like, "Oh, that's not nearly as crazy as it." as it could have been. I was thinking like aliens and like conspiracy theories and government politics and all sorts of crazy stuff. And then it was just like, Oh, well this kind of happened and this kind of happened so, thinking- uh, without making it spoilerful. At least it was kind of, I don't know. I was just kind of disappointed that they didn't do more with it. Mm-hmm. Sure. But maybe yeah, they Ma- just ran out of time and money. <laughs> yeah. Mason, uh, that was that he kind of had that too, because he felt like the yeah. biggest, part for him was the part where he kind of questioned his own sanity during mm-hmm. the game. Um, and he thought that was the most thought provoking striking part of it. And then when that kind of, that thread fizzled out relatively quickly, then and he kind of came back. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, I started playing a bit of Spelunky. I didn't like it at all, which is Thank surprising. You. Thank you. Yeah. You <laughs> hate that, right? Don't you Dylan? Well, well, I don't hate it. It's just, it's just not for me. Just, everyone was telling me this is like the game that you have to play as a designer, as a human, you must play Spelunky. Yeah. And I just, I, I don't know. I found it repetitive, even though it's pretty generated. And I found mm-hmm. it, um, didn't feel great. Like the jumping, the movement didn't feel great. And I just, yeah, the platforming in that is just like, like yeah, I don't know. I, I just didn't feel great about it, but yeah, yeah, way too much rocket league and, uh, rocket league. I actually had an interesting, sort of revelation about. So I was playing twos and I got quite, not super high ranked, but I got quite high ranked in twos in, I guess, season two or season one. And I was noticing that I got to a point where it was actually making me more angry. Like I would play for an hour and I would end up in a worse mood than I was before. Yeah. And I was like, this is not what games are supposed to do. And I started playing solo standard, which is three on three. And just in case people don't know, it's three on three and you can't come in with a team. So it's not three people together. It has to be three individual people and different computers. And I found it way, way better because the 
when you're playing with two people on your team, and this can be extended to any sort of game, when you're playing with two people on your team, if you screw up, first of all, you feel really bad because you're the sole cause of the screw up. And if the other person screws up, it's really easy to get mad at them and say, oh, well, I would, would have won if my partner wasn't so bad. When you're three people, if one person screws up, it's easier to say, okay, like, it's fine. You know, it could have happened to any of us. And um, the other thing that I find even even more important is that if someone starts to get sort of toxic, so in the chat, they start saying like, oh, like, why'd you go up for the ball? Or like, why do you suck so much? Generally, the other person will defend that person. So instead of it being like someone being annoyed at you and vice versa, and then you just have to deal with your mutual dislike <laughs> of each other, then you can have one person gets mad, the other two are like, hey, like, calm down. You know, we're not, we're not pros here. It's all good. And I think that camaraderie makes it really way more of a fun experience. Yeah. I think you and I had kind of the same progression with Rocket League because when I first started playing it, I think last summer, yeah, somewhere around then, whenever, whenever it came out, I um, I was literally like screaming at my television if I like missed a hit, got a goal scored on me, like it it was bad, and then the I immediately just started playing three on three and four on four, and not even just three on three or t- team based games. I was just playing unranked because I think that extra layer of like uh prestige just made the game so much less fun. It's like no, I I need to I need to move up in the rankings. And then the second I let that go, I had way more fun with that game. Mm. Yeah, a similar thing in the sense of I'm still playing ranked for sure, but I you know, if I lose, it's not the end of the world. If I lose four in a row, then I get a little pissed off, but you know, if I lose a game, it's the only the only thing I don't like about it. And I'm not sure if this is the case with other games, uh, other team-based games, or even like things like MOBAs. But if I'm not with a team, I find, or if I'm not like, if I'm playing the solo one where everyone is from is on their own computers, I find I really have to play defensively because no one takes responsibility. Whereas I think if you're on a team, you would have more predefined roles, and there would be an assumption of taking responsibility for your friends as opposed to uh, just sort of running around and hoping it works out. So that's, I think I'm getting just past the point where people do that. I think I'm now at the point where people are good enough that they realize they have to be responsible, but, but yeah, I've been playing a lot of that. Yeah. The first time you play against someone who's like really good at aerial attacks, you just, you just want to put the controller down and never want to play the game again. Cause they're just striking from like ridiculous bank shots and things like that. It's like, well, this, this game, this, this game is, this game's fucked. I'm, I'm done. It's like, I will never be that good. Yeah. Oh, actually another game that I played, uh, video ball. Don't know if you guys have played that. I've, I've heard about it. I've heard, uh, really good things. Yeah. It's quite fun. Apparently the online, according to my colleague that I talked to today, he said he played online and there was no, it wouldn't find any matches. So maybe there's nobody playing or their online system is a little bit messy. But I know certainly locally we're playing two-on-two just within the company. And it was easy to pick up, uh, definitely hard-ish to master. We didn't get to the point where we mastered it. But I don't think it's, I don't think it has the depth of something like Rocket League, but I don't think anyone can expect to have that. Yeah. So, <clears throat> Especially so, with a uh, single developer. Yeah, a single developer and a 2D game that's sort of kind of physics-based, but sort of fake physics-based. 
I mean, I guess Rocket League is fake physics based also, but it doesn't feel like it. <laughs> no, nah, man, it's all real. Yeah, I, but, but it does feel, that's Rocket League feels so good. It just feels yeah. good. Yeah. No, it does. And there are some interesting decisions. The uh, Corey Davis from Psionics came to our workspace uh, at some point, and he gave a little talk about the develop. Well, I don't know if you guys saw the GDC talk by him, but it was I, basically I so. It was basically just the story of psionics and rocket league and the success that they've had and the, he came and did a similar thing at our at our workspace and we went out for a beer after with a few a few people and we we're talking about some of the decisions they made and it was really um some of the things are really arbitrary like the idea of blowing people up was was not quite a bug but it was a feature that was from a way long time before and they're like oh, yeah we'll get rid of that at some point and people just liked it so they're like eh, all right that makes sense to keep it um, but there's other things like the hitboxes for the cars are all square. They're all they're all rectangular prisms. They're not you know fitted to the car. They're not right. a mesh of the car shape. Are they all the same and size? Because there's they're, that they're like not all the same size. Okay, no, they're, all they're right. not all the same size. They're not all the same height. But they are all square, like okay. rectangular Got prisms. It. And the other thing is that when you hit the ball, it moves away from your car in the direction as if it hit the center of gravity of your car not the point on your car that it actually hit. Mm, okay. So it's almost like faked that it's shooting because it's coming off of your car in as if, yeah, as if the momentum came from your center of gravity as yeah. opposed to wherever it hit the car. As if the so, car was a single point. Yeah, exactly. And it goes outward from there as opposed to, you know, outward perpendicular to whatever surface it hit. And that's something that I don't know how they came up with or where, when they did that, but that's certainly something that is very simple when you think about it, but it makes all the difference in the world in terms of feel. Definitely. Definitely. I was, I was going to ask if like his, his talk that he gave you guys basically just came in and was like, all right, make the game that you want to make and then make it again a second <laughs> time. And the second time is going to sell way better. Uh, yes and no. No, they did. Uh, they, I think the big thing there was that they had made something that people were playing on PS3 and they were playing at, I don't know how many frames per second, but significantly less than 30. And when they were playing the game on PC that they had developed on PC, they were having way more fun with it than other people were. And people weren't really getting the experience that they were. They realized that they were onto something because people who loved it really, really loved it. Like they had a very, very strong core community. It was a small community, but there were tournaments and there was there was a lot of competition there and there was a lot of depth of mechanics it's just that they felt it wasn't super accessible it was also on ps3 and they thought that you know this time they can make something that's more that's more accessible that's mm -hmm. easier for people to pick up and that doesn't look quite as toyish like the cars were quite toy cars they still are a little bit but they found that they were able to make them a little bit less so the other thing was dedicated servers. He said that was one of the biggest differences because they were doing peer-to-peer, -peer, so they had all sorts of issues of lag and stuff. You know, it just was not working. This time they put dedicated servers and it completely changed everything. Now, they also didn't expect... They expected something like 10,000 players at the like when they started, and they had something like 170,000 in the first day, and their servers exploded, and they <laughs> had to fly down to somewhere in Texas to a server farm somewhere, and like it was insanity but uh but they said the dedicated server thing was probably the biggest difference maker yeah well that's cool and that idea definitely has legs to it and i certainly think everyone here present and accounted for certainly enjoys the hell out of that game 
<laughs> for sure. Yeah, no, for sure. But it's also interesting to think about, like you were talking about uh, Ingress becoming Pokemon Go. Well, Rocket League is a similar thing, right? The supersonic acrobatic, what is it? Supersonic battle acrobatic rocket-powered battle cars. Yeah. Supersonic acrobatic so, rocket Memorable rocket title. Power. Yeah. He, yeah, he said, he said that was the worst idea ever, and he's just like never, ever, ever make that mistake. Um, but so, yeah, so they sort of built something. They had a small core audience that liked it, and they knew they were onto something. But it didn't really take off the way they wanted to either, because the tech wasn't there, or because the communication wasn't there, or there was something missing. I think you could say the same thing for companies that generally build tech on one game. And then use that to do other stuff. There's another. There's a company in Montreal called Kit Fox Games. I'm not sure if you know them. They're uh, they just came out with the game Moon Hunters, which is a procedural storytelling sort of um, RPG. It's it's been described as a an RPG personality test. So it is an RPG. You're wandering around. You're fighting stuff and so on. But you also there's a lot of procedurally generated. Um, the, the world is procedurally generated and your interaction with people can change based on how you've interacted with previous people and, and so on. It's very story driven, but they had made a game before that was called Shattered Planet, which had procedural generation. It was a mobile game, but it was still procedurally generated and the tech they developed and the stuff they learned from there, they used, they very much used that knowledge in their second game. Mm-hmm. I think there's something to be said for not completely switching gears and going from, you know, not being able to reuse any of the stuff that you learned or created in your next game. I think there's there's something to be said for for you know reusing that tech. Which I have no idea if we're gonna do, but at least <laughs> I in, in theory that's No, you gotta that follow your own sense. advice. You gotta say yes, we are committed to reusing this tech. For, we'll see what happens. We'd for, like to, but but we all, might make a three D game that's, you know, physics based, so like who has any idea? Yeah. You heard it here first, people. <laughs> word exclusive yeah awesome no we we're actually going to start working on our next game when we start the console ports so that should be happening in the next probably two months or so we'll start nice and then we're hoping to be able to take a little bit of time while we're doing that and just have a like beyond brainstorming just to the basic sort of bare bone prototyping so that when we finish the console ports we can actually be like hey this game is done and then if we're doing content it's you know small amounts of content here and there but we can actually start working on a game that we have a good idea as opposed to, um, you know, ending up finishing our project and being like, all right, guys, we've got two months to come up with a really, really, really good idea. That's, I don't like that. So that's our runway. <laughs> and then yeah, we're no, bankrupt. I mean, we definitely have better runway than two months, but right. still being under pressure of instead of it being like, oh, we have these six good ideas, let's develop them a little bit and being like, okay, guys, be creative, go. That doesn't mm-hmm. work for anyone. Cool. Well, that sounds awesome, and I'm I'm really glad we had you on to talk about that. And I love, I, I love hearing about that, and love hearing about you know how devs are doing at different parts of their their cycle with their development processes. For sure. Well, I mean, thanks for having me, and it's good to chat about all this stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah. we'd love to have you on again if you you know ever want to talk to us about what you're working on or anything else, or have the other guys on your team come on and talk to us. Sounds good. Yeah, I'll definitely. Uh, Pass the message along, and I'm sure we'll stay in touch. And, cool. and where can we, uh, where can we get Ultimate Chicken Horse? Ah, so you can get Ultimate Chicken Horse on Steam. Okay. So if you look up Ultimate Chicken Horse, pretty much anywhere, it'll give you that link. Um, <laughs> look at can, that SEO work. Yeah. Well, 
when you name your game Ultimate Chicken Horse, it's pretty hard to not have the SEO work. <laughs> right. Um, also, one of the reasons why we kept the name Ultimate Chicken Horse, by the way. But, Sounds good. That's smart. Um, and then our Twitter is Clev Dev Games. So like Clever Endeavor Games, but shortened to Clev Dev. And uh, you guys can plop that in the description in the YouTube video or whatever. And people on the podcast can listen back to those last two seconds and type it in. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely check it we'll out. definitely guys. share check, your stuff. Download the game, buy the game, have some fun with your friends. Uh, couch Co-op and online, yes? Yes. Indeed. Awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, and, party. and a mixture of the two. So you could be like two people playing online with other two people somewhere else. Oh, sweet. Oh, I didn't realize that we could have, we could have done it as a team already, but we're going to, when we all get back to Richmond, we're going to, one of the first things we do, we're going to sit down and, and we're going to play it together. So it'll be fun. Yeah. I think we're Sounds gonna, good. It's going to be a night of that, uh, Jackbox party pack two, And I think samurai gun. So. Nice. All, all good choices. <laughs> be a stack. All those things. For sure. Stack deck. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop this broadcast, and Rich, I'd like you to stay on for just a second so we can resync your stuff, and no then worries. we'll be done for the night, gentlemen. Thanks again, Dan. Thanks again, Rich. Always a pleasure, Dylan. Richard, thanks for coming on. Cheers. <laughs>